0: It is said that there are nine arts. And what if video games is the 10th? I'm Charles Adam Foster Simard from Ubisoft. You're listening to The 10th Art, a podcast series about the place of video games in entertainment, culture, and society. Okay, so video games are supposed to be fun, right? But would you be interested in a video game where you play as a truck driver delivering cargo? Or a game in which you unpack someone's possessions as she moves from place to place. Or how does this one sound? A game where you use a power washer to clean things around the house. With so many games using deceptively simple and at first glance mundane game concepts that are attracting millions of players, today on the show, we wanted to ask this simple question. Can anything be a game? And conversely, what lessons can we learn from video games that we can bring into everyday life? To discuss this topic, I've invited Miriam Popescu, game designer at Ubisoft Massive in Malmö, Sweden, and Adrian Hahn, co-founder and CEO of Six to Start, co-creator of the wildly popular fitness game Zombies Run, and the author of a recent book called You've Been Played, How Corporations, Governments, and Schools Use Games to Control Us All. So hello, Miriam, and hello, Adrian. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Hey, thank you for having us.
0: Great to be here. It's lovely to have both of you here. I'm very excited for this conversation. This is a fascinating topic. I've been reading Adrian's book and uh, thinking a lot about uh, gamification and what's a game and and what's a good game (laughs) recently, so I'm excited to dive in. Before we begin, if you can just both introduce yourself, say what you do in a few words, and I'm interested to know also how you began working in the world of gaming, so maybe we can start with you, Adrian.
1: So, yeah, I'm Adrian Horn. I'm CEO at Six to Start. Uh, we design smartphone fitness games. So the most well-known one is called Zombies Run, a game which makes running more exciting in the real world. I first got started in games through alternate reality games, actually, which is a pretty unusual route, you know, games that take place on, on the internet and through emails and the real world and, and phone calls. And I'm also uh, an author, so I recently wrote a book about gamification called "You've Been Played." Great! And what about you, Miriam?
2: Hey, so yeah, I'm Miriam, and I'm a senior game designer up in beautiful Malmo, Sweden, at Ubisoft Massive. And uh, yeah, I got started in games by making browser games ten years ago, out of all things, in in Germany at Travian Games, and then I did a bit of a speed run through a bunch of different types of games, from mobile paid. Over to free to play, and now I'm working in AAA. And were you both always interested in games, like as children?
0: Did you grow up playing games, thinking about different kinds of games?
1: Um, yeah, for me, uh, I you know I I grew up playing games. I wanted to be a game designer actually when ah. I was a teenager, but my my parents I think didn't really approve of that, and and also it seemed like it would be too difficult to become a programmer. So I I uh, studied neuroscience and psychology first before uh, getting into games anyway.
2: Yeah, it's, it's similar for me. I knew I wanted to make games, but I didn't really know what a game designer was or what the difference between a game designer and a programmer actually is. So I started digging in forums a little bit, trying to find out how to actually get to make the games. Um, and it seemed to me like the best method would have been to just study computer science and then somehow take it from there, which is what I ended up doing.
0: Well, in fact, you both mentioned a game designer, and and that's literally your job, Miriam. I'm interested, actually, if you can just start by explaining what is a a game designer? What role does a game designer have in a development team, for example?
2: Sure. So game designers, they normally take a high-level vision that is provided by direction, and then they break it down into concrete game mechanics, and they have to communicate these mechanics to the rest of the team. So, for example, you work really closely with audio and VFX and animation and QC to actually create a prototype of the mechanic, improve it. Sometimes you have to redo parts of it until you finally manage to deliver an experience that fits this original vision that you got. And maybe to give you a more concrete example of that, a vision can be something like uh, Mario. He's a superhuman character, but also a plumber. And he does superhuman things. So one way to deliver it would be to, for example, make him jump super high. But if Mario jumps, then how high can he jump? And at what speed? And how do you handle collisions? And does he have animations? Do you play a specific sound? So basically, you're coming up with all the different rules that apply to the game.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Do you have a specific specialty or or some specialties in your field of game design that you, you know, are particularly interested in or are focused on when you're working?
2: Yeah. So at my core, I'm more of a systems designer than anything else, but I also concentrate on combat as a system. And what that actually means is a system on its own is just a framework of different elements, and these elements can have inputs, and they generate outputs, and they're tied together by, by game mechanics. But you can apply that to a combat situation by analyzing the AI and making up specific rules for them and how they behave for combat, or analyzing the so-called three Cs that, uh the camera, the player controls, and the character themselves. There's also things like the player tools and the weapons, So how these things all interact to make for good combat is Mm. what the combat designer does.
0: Adrian, I was really interested by the book that you recently wrote uh, called You've Been Played, as you mentioned. And we're turning a little bit maybe the premise of your book around. You're talking a lot about gamification of Things like work and school and government and how those fields are kind of borrowing from games and and gamifying real life, in in inverted quotes, to achieve different goals. But we're also interested here today into how games are actually inspired by everyday, rather mundane things sometimes to gamify them. And so maybe if we can just kind of settle some terms before we dive into the rest of the conversation— you know, how do you define gamification? What are some top-of-mind mechanics that you have when we're talking about gamifying activities? And I don't know if anything that you're going to say can resonate with what Miriam was presenting in terms of uh, her work as a game designer as well.
1: Well, sure. I mean, you know, I think there's a few different answers I can give there. I mean, gamification is a pretty broad term, Mm -hmm. and the way I would define that is using ideas from video games and game design for non-game purposes. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of different things. And the way that most people understand gamification is pretty basic and I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, often when people add things like missions and badges and achievements and and leaderboards and and points to Boring activities, they'll say, Oh, we've gamified it. And usually it doesn't really make it any more fun. I think the best forms of gamification are obviously where you take a boring activity and it is more fun. (laughs) And that can use points and badges and and progress bars, but it doesn't have to actually, because a lot of games don't use those things. And so I guess where I tie it back in is I think it's really specific. You know, I think the best kinds of gamification have to pay attention to the details a bit like In combat you know you have to kind of think exactly you know how to tailor gamification for each activity because Mm. what works for trying to teach someone a new language is not going to work for trying to encourage someone to clean their bedroom it's a completely different uh uh thing and you can't expect the same systems to work
0: so it's using systems that are really adapted to the activity that you're looking into gamifying for example
1: yeah, I, th- I think you just have to be really kind of curious and really interested in what makes one activity different from another, mm. you know? And so if your, your goal is to just, well, I, I just want to go in the Gamify XYZ, then it's not going to work if you take the same systems from a completely different activity. Adrian, do you want
0: to talk about the mopping example that you use in your book? I thought that was very interesting, how you kind of guide us through how you would gamify mopping. Uh, kitchen yeah. Floor.
1: So, so <laughs> someone, someone asked me this question at a conference. They said, how would you make mopping, you know, the floor more interesting? Because, you know, mopping is a really good example, because um, it's something where you know that you should be mopping your floors more, right? How, however much you're mopping them, it's probably not enough. But the problem is, is it's kind of boring, and it's a bit dirty, and it's a bit tiring. So people want a bit more excitement and motivation. And the straightforward way of gamifying mopping would be to say, well, every time you mop a floor, then you get 20 points, and after 100 points, you get a badge. That might work for the first few times, but it's not actually making the act of mopping any more fun. Right, While you're mopping, Mm -hmm. it's exactly the same activity. Whereas I think that To make mopping more fun, you would have to have the game be aware of the state (laughs) of your floor, right? So just being specific there, if the game was just saying, hey, just press this button when you're done, then you could obviously just go and cheat, right? What would be interesting is if the game, you know, had cameras looking at your floor so it could tell how much you'd done and how well you'd done, how quickly you'd done it. Mm. And so my argument in the book is sometimes... If you want to gamify an activity, you need to have the right technology. And to cut a long story short, I think for mopping, you would actually need like augmented reality to make that really (laughs) effective. You'd need
0: glasses that are showing you, you know, the floor, seeing where you've mopped and where you haven't mopped
1: and... You know, it, it would show the areas you haven't mopped and then it would put, you know, little bugs there and or little aliens <laughs> and things like that. You'd been zapping monsters. Yeah, that would make it a bit more interesting because if it was just an app on your phone, I don't really see how that's going to really make it any more fun. Miriam, does that speak to you as a game designer?
2: It does because this sounds very much like viscera cleanup detail. I don't know <laughs> if any of you has played that. Yes. So the premise of the game is that there's been some atrocious... Uh, calamity on a space station and everything's just full of blood. Therefore, you are the chosen one to go and clean it up. And it it plays into some other cleanup sim type of games. But it is very rewarding somehow to take something that is dirty and grimy and with the click of a button or the swipe of your mouse, make it shiny again. And I think that's pretty much the appeal of the whole game. It also has co-op, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I can see that being way more appealing than just, you know, cleaning my floor without the extra incentive of the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, how do you make a really repetitive activity feel a bit more varied and a bit more interesting each time? So like, you know, I give the example of Power Wash Simulator, you know, where you're like cleaning, you know, cars or buildings with, with a hose. It'll be a really boring game if you're just power washing exactly the same car like a thousand times. Like that's not going to work. It It's an interesting game because you get to power wash different things.
2: Yeah. And I think what they also do very well is present the player with different challenges and tools that they unlock over time to get better at overcoming the challenges. So you'd have different hoses, you have mm. different types of dirt, you have different things to experiment with that sometimes turn out to be the right tool and sometimes they turn out to be the wrong tool for the job. Mm. But you can always find new things to to try in the game
0: it's rpg uh power wash simulator (laughs) yes But kidding aside, I'm really interested in also how we can even apply this to AAA games, like the ones that you work on, Miriam, at at Ubisoft, because AAA games are so big and they include so many different kinds of activities. You know, there's a lot of games where you do different things. You talk to other characters, you have multiplayer elements to them, you walk around, you do fetch quests, you drive, you play sports. So do you often think in your work, Miriam, about how even you're gamifying like things that are quite mundane and that we even do in in our day-to-day lives, things like driving and walking around and talking to people in a triple-A game? And how do you make those things rewarding? Or I guess my bigger question is how do games generally make those things rewarding for players where they feel like doing them?
2: Well, I think the the important part here is that we don't primarily think of designing a game in terms of gamification. Mm -hmm. We think about what motivates the player to actually play our game, what kind of games they prefer. and. Then we go into the details of, hey, how can we adapt these mechanics to cater to specific playstyles, right? So if I were to, to give an example for that, if you were to just make a game like Plants vs. Zombies, where you have a simple plant, it can grow, it has inputs, it has outputs, it takes sun and it outputs, uh, I don't know, beans, it's, it shoots at things, right? The original Plants vs. Zombies would be more of a, tower defense game, where you have the zombies walking towards plants and you put up different obstacles. That that caters to a different type of player compared to Plants vs. Zombies. I think it's called Garden Warfare, where you turn the premise into a shooter. Now Mm. you are the one that controls the plant and the zombies are actual um, NPCs with their own behaviors. There's other players in there with you as well. And that type of game caters more towards players that like the type of challenge where they have to control their character and aim well and work well together with others.
0: Well, Miriam brought up zombies, so I feel that I must bring, <laughs> bring up Zombies Run, Adrian, which is the game that you co-created. So can you explain a little bit how you tackled the problem with Zombies Run quite a while ago now and how you created a, you know, an engaging, positive experience
1: for runners with that app? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the key thing was really trying to think about what it is possible to do when you're actually outside running. So we weren't the first smartphone, you know, running game. There were actually a few that, that came before us um, on the iPhone and Android and, and even, you know, smart smartphones before those two things. Mm-hmm. And most of those games basically showed you a map of the real world, a little bit like Pokemon Go, and they would superimpose zombies on the roads or on the land near you and or they might have treasure that you have to pick up and so you'll be looking at the map and you'd be running towards those things and um I can sense a few issues with that that premise. Yeah, that's a a few issues. The first one is that maybe it's okay to be looking at your phone when you're walking. Although, you know, obviously be careful. (laughs) It's definitely not okay to be running with your phone out. Now, if you aren't doing that, then you're stopping every minute to look at your phone, which is not how anyone really wants to be running. And, you know, that's another problem, which is that when I played these games, they would always tell me to run to places I didn't really want to run to you know, as a runner, I have like three or four routes that I just cycle between because they're the right length, you know, when they go past interesting places and and I know they're quiet or they're they're kind of different fun. And so with that in mind, you know, we, we were thinking about the fact that what runners do do is they have headphones, right? And they often track their runs using, you know, apps like RunKeeper or Strava or Nike. And so we thought, okay, well, there's not. We can't really have people look at the screen. We can't have people you know, pressing buttons on the phone all the time. It's just going to disrupt the running experience. So why don't we try and use audio? So we created this idea of an audio adventure where you are getting something a bit like a podcast or, or an audiobook with story that you could listen to while you're running so you don't need to look at the screen. And you'll be chased by zombies periodically. And the only thing you need to do is just to run faster, to outrun the zombies. Everything happens kind of automatically. It's like a sort of, you know, no-button game, right? And so it's a very simple kind of game, but it's also very immersive because it's all audio-based. And I think that's why it ended up being successful, even though when, when a lot of people hear about zombies run, they do think it will actually be Pokemon Go. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and they start playing it like, but there's nothing on the screen. It's like, yeah, don't, don't worry. Just, just go for a run and, and, and Trust hopefully you'll find it interesting. Trust the <laughs> process, you know, and then they really get into it. But of course, you know, that's not surprising. I mean, people really like listening to podcasts and audiobooks. And people really like stories, right? We don't often think about
0: that when we're thinking about gamification, but just exactly trying it, wanting to get to the end of a story, wanting to
1: follow characters through a narrative is a very strong drive, I think. Well, 100%. You know, whenever I talk at, like, um, fitness conferences or health conferences, you know, people are always interested in game design, uh, and I talk about that. I'm like, yeah, but you know why people stick with things? It's also because of story. You know, people are very interested in finding out what happens next, and, you know, role playing games and action adventures are really good at that as well. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's always better when you walk away from an experience with a story to tell. And that can be something that is created, you know, systemically in something like Dwarf Fortress, where there's a lot of variables just coming together to create this sometimes mind-blowing story for you. And I'll I'll give an example for that as well. I was just learning how to play the game and I had a very simple setup. I played it for two weeks. It wasn't easy. And things were looking pretty sweet. Like my dwarves were all happy, We're (laughs) digging a lot of holes until... A huge atrocity showed up, like some sort of huge monster. It took up so many uh, pixels on my screen. (laughs) And I sent everybody in for the battle. Every single dwarf that I had fought against this thing. And we fought for two days. And when they finally got it down to the last health point, it turned out it wasn't any kind of monster. It was an elf kid. And this elf kid had just spoken the wrong incantation which led to it becoming a monster. And my last dwarf was facing off against this kid, and I had the choice to actually, you know, strike him down or let him go. So I let him go. And the last dwarf that I had then just died of loneliness, which is a oh. very oh, no. <laughs> sad, tragic story. <laughs> like, I think about that to this day. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> but it's amazing. That, that's, that's the type of game that I really, really love.
1: Yeah. It's one of the best, like, single-player games where you hear about these story, sort of procedurally generated stories. You know, it's like EVE Online, you hear that as well, but that's kind of f- from a multiplayer point of view And Dwarf Fortress. I think there's something about the simplicity of the graphics that lets you, you know, layer that on, on top.
0: Miriam, can you talk a little bit about the state of flow? Because I, I know that it's something that uh, development teams think and work a lot on, and I'm interested to know what it means to you and what role it plays in, in your work every day.
2: Uh, Sure. Yeah. So so to me as a game designer, this is basically the, the holy grail, the spot where you want to take all your games and you want to reach it. And I don't think it's exclusive to games, by the way. I've experience, for example, runner's high, right? Where you feel so good and you're so much into running and you don't feel tired anymore. Mm. And maybe meditation, though I haven't tried that myself. But yeah, the state of flow itself, I like to describe it like a state of mind where you kind of become one with the game and you only really reach it when you've played the game for a while, you know its mechanics, you know what to expect of it. And suddenly you're not, you know, this Troubled human being sitting in front of a computer anymore. You've become one with the game and you've become one with the game world itself. And it feels very natural to interact with it suddenly. And the challenges you're presented with, you're just automatically overcoming them. They need to be still a challenge. So they can't be completely easy to actually overcome, but you feel very good about all the interactions that you're having with the game. And you really don't think about them anymore. And while that sounds amazing, and it's something that, that we all strive for, it's, it doesn't happen naturally, and it's really easy to drop out of it. Mm. Um, for example, if I were to take something like Ghost of Tsushima, which is a samurai game, and you're fighting left and right, and you're swinging, and suddenly this doesn't happen in the real game. But if you were to get, let's say, your notification to buy a better sword on half <laughs> of your screen, that would immediately just ruin the state of flow and mm. your state of mind in that moment.
0: And what are some of the levers that you can kind of pull on or the things that you can look at and tweak when you're trying to make sure that, you know, you're creating the right conditions for a state of <laughs> flow in the player when they're, when they're playing a game?
2: There's a lot of very minute detail work in animations and animations fitting the sound and the sound fitting the expectation of the action that you're performing in the game. And all of that needs to try, uh, to tie together into the actual inputs that the players are making. Mm. So it's a mix of all those things, the controls, animations, the VFX, the sounds, and the actual challenges that you present to the player that they have to overcome.
1: You know, I, I was thinking about games where I've experienced flow and, you know, Hades was was a great one where, you know, the difficulty was just right in terms of, I, I guess it started out being incredibly difficult and then the, for a large part of the game, you know, I, I sort of figured out the controls and and could just zone out for half an hour getting through through the dungeon. Mm. But I think the other thing, kind of um, sort of very different example would be something like Assassin's Creed where I'm running across the rooftops and... It's just so much fun. I mean, I'm not really doing anything in particular, maybe. I'm just trying to trying to like get around town to go and find some interesting new location. But then there will be moments where you sort of reach a river and you're like, ah, I'm just going to fall off the side here. And, and then you sort of lose that flow. And mm. so almost in the level design itself, I can see that a lot of attention is being paid to trying to make sure it's always clear where you could go and where you can't go and routes through not making it it, it'll be boring if it was just too easy but it'll be i'll get broken out of flow you can't really get into something into flow if it's too easy it's just it's just boring but um if it becomes too difficult then you're having to almost think a bit too hard and and that's a different kind of game and what's satisfying with
0: Assassin's Creed is oftentimes you don't have that UI, you don't have the user interface telling you where you can't and can't uh, run or jump or or climb or whatever. It's it's built into the level design and sometimes it's test and learn to see, oh, can I climb that surface? Can I not climb that surface? Can I, can I jump high enough?
2: Yeah, something that I would wish we as game designers had a bit more courage to do is present the player with a bit less information Mm. if anything (laughs) like no ui or low ui modes are becoming a thing now and that's amazing um also thank you to elden ring that Mm. you know dared to be more hardcore than your average game and dared to hide secrets and make things a bit more obtuse but even more interesting to discover to the player but yeah just Having the courage to let your players dive into your world and experience it naturally instead of, you know, just, it's well meant at the end, taking their hand and putting them in front of the next, uh, yeah, encounter in the game.
0: Adrian, you brought up Power Wash Simulator at the beginning of the conversation, I was really interested to talk about Sims today and all kinds of different sim games. Of course, there's the Sims where you just kind of follow characters through their entire lives, it seems, right? They have jobs and they fall in love and they have children and they build homes and so forth. Uh, Animal Crossing has been even more popular than it used to be with the pandemic. But there's also these like little games that it seems to me like take something of the, our real world and just build a game around them like you can be, you know, you can drive a truck and truck driver. Power Rush Simulator is about Power washing of course unpacking is a beautiful game that's about unpacking someone's belongings and kind of discovering her life story as you unpack uh, in, in every place where she moves so i wanted to ask a bigger question to you both about what do you think is attractive about these games and what tools do game designers use to to create satisfying experiences out of these you know quite mundane activities
1: I, I think with something like, you know, uh you know, truck driver simulator or power wash simulator, one of the reasons why it works is because people kind of already know like how a power wash is meant to work. Right. <laughs> you don't you don't have to kind of teach people yeah. you know, they know they they've probably done it before, they've seen a video of it at least. And you know, similar with driving some specialized simulators are more difficult. Like if you put me in front of like a train, you know, controls, I'm not sure I would know what to do. But if you were into trains, you probably would know, right? And the same with like flight simulator. Sure. And so I think that part of it is just that you have people who are already really interested in truck driving or flight simulator. And if you give them something that looks, you know, Accurate, then you can address that niche. So it's almost like you don't actually have to try that hard because people are already into that subject. But then I think I don't know if there's actually like a massive group of power wash, you know, fans out there. To be perfectly <laughs> honest, you know. And so, so I think that's tapping into something a bit deeper, which is I think people just like cleaning things. You know, you just like cleaning, cleaning objects. It's a pretty primal drive. And yeah, you know, I I think it kind of ties back into the importance of having a really intuitive interface. You know, you talked about the physics. Hmm. When you have like a touchscreen and you're playing a game where you're kind of cleaning an object by scrubbing across it, that just feels really like satisfying. This is kind of nasty,
0: but it reminds me there was an app that was a pimple popper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is disgusting, but it's, some people find that satisfying and it was the same kind of thing, right? You know you know what to do with your fingers.
1: And so these games allow you to take these experiences which some people find really satisfying and kind of compress them so you just get the most interesting bits so maybe if you've got a flight simulator you can you can fast forward time so you're Mm. not you know you're not sort of doing the boring bit while you're flying across the atlantic you're just doing the interesting bits
0: miriam would you agree with that
2: yeah i think they also tie into you know that that part of your brain that inner kid where you always, as a kid, you always wanted to find out how the bus works. I did. I still want to know what all those buttons do on the bus. I don't know. But I could buy myself the bus simulator and drive around Germany if I so desired. That's, I think, also part of the equation why these games are so beloved.
0: Do you have any other examples that you'd like to share of maybe games that are particularly surprising or unexpected in their premises and that you thought you know, did a good job of, of gamifying something like that or or turning them into a satisfying game?
1: Well, people have been talking about Trombone champ recently. It's obviously not really, like, a, um, you're not really playing a trombone. But when I was a kid, I learned the violin, and it's just the most horrible, like, learning experience, honestly, because the violin just sounds absolutely terrible when you're learning. And I always wanted to design a game, like Violin Hero, like, you know, Guitar Hero, that, that would make it more interesting. And so I have a lot of respect for game designers who are trying to make playing the guitar more interesting or playing, playing these things, because it's, it's a pretty tricky undertaking, actually. Anything like that is is worth
2: doing. On my side, I um, played a game recently. It's called It's Not For Broadcast. Um, mm-hmm. And it's got a very healthy amount of, of British humor <laughs> and a little bit of politics up in it. But... The point of the game is for you to be a broadcast agent. So you're pushing all the buttons, you're queuing up all the video feeds, and you're basically controlling what actually goes out into people's TV stations. Wow! And that's a lot of multitasking that you have to do, and... The minigames themselves would not be as interesting as they are if they would not be tied into a bigger narrative that takes you through multiple days in this person's, you know, broadcasting career. Mm. So I can definitely recommend that.
1: You're like cutting between cameras, aren't you? And like zooming in and stuff.
2: Yes, you're also picking what kind of ads you want to play and whether they you know, cater to a specific political view or a different one. So that's where you're actually playing with fire a little bit. And I have not finished the game, but I expect different outcomes depending on my choices.
0: Well, that's where we're coming back to that layer of narrative, right? And wanting to know what happens next or, or being able to change sometimes the narrative of the story when you have branching narratives as a satisfying way of, of entering the world of a game.
2: Yeah, it makes me feel more seen as a player if my choices actually matter and more well competent in in making them
0: Adrian, do you feel confident that anything can be turned
1: into a game and into a good game, a satisfying game? Wow, anything, you know, anything <laughs> encompasses a lot. I, <laughs> I think, it, I think the cool thing about gamification is uh, it poses you with a lot of challenges. You know, I went on this, um, I did this sort of mega game. It's a bit like a LARP or like a, a role playing game, and um, you know, I had the job of being a reporter, like a journalist and that was actually really fun i i wasn't sure how how you like gamify being a journalist that wasn't even really the point of the game but but it just ended up being really fun anyway i actually think you probably could i was now, hoping you'd you say should, that <laughs> yeah whether you should gamify anything i i don't i don't know if i agree with that because i think there are some subjects which are which are kind of too important but mm-hmm. having said that i think there are some activities which are much easier to to gamify than others and part of that is technological and part of that is just people's pre-existing interest right like gamifying learning a new language that's just really hard because i think just learning a new language is really hard you can certainly do it um duolingo has tried in a pretty basic way what do you mean by that? Is that at the end of the day, it's the
0: satisfaction and the motivation of learning the language that's pulling you forward, not not the points and the
1: leaderboards and the scores and so forth? Yeah, I mean, Duolingo is an interesting example, because I think most people who are really serious about learning a new language have a reason for doing that, because they really want to go and live in that, that country, or, or you know, they've met a partner, or, or that sort of thing, they've got some sort of like family connection. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of doesn't matter if the game is that good, they'll, they'll still play it. And so... In terms of areas which are fruitful for gamification, it's worth just looking at stuff that people already want to do. Um, Absolutely. But
0: people really don't want to break their streak, though.
1: They don't. You know, I think that there are some sort of psychological tricks which games take advantage of, sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad ways. Like, you know, we don't have a streak bonus in Zombies Run because... Mm. It's pretty unhealthy to just be running every single day, you know, right. without taking or a rest. if you're
0: injured or
1: whatever. Right. And so, you know, that's an area where I think you have to be careful as a game designer to think about what kind of behaviors you're really promoting. Now, I don't think it matters as much for something like learning a language, because nothing really bad is going to happen, probably, if you if you just keep using the app every day. But then you have to sort of come back to, like, why are people using this? Is it just because they don't want to break their streak? I think as game designers, we want people to use our, to play our games, because it's fun, not because they just want to get the badge.
0: Yeah, it has to be meaningful, right? They have to feel like they, they got something out of it, not just to not break their streak. Yeah. Miriam, what's your answer to the question? Do you think anything can be turned into a game?
2: (laughs) At its core, I I think, yes. The question is whether we should. And I think that's a question that, you know, every single one of us that design a game or handle any kind of gamification should ask themselves. Because at the end of the day, the limits of game design are not uh, mechanical, they're ethical. Mm. so whether you should be making this ultra gory violent game just for the sake of making this ultra gory violent game you can sure has it been done before probably what are you actually adding to the discussion i don't know same thing for gamification are you actually building this to give your audience something or are you building this to just increase the bottom line for whatever company you're um yeah working for
0: Adrian, Miriam, I want to thank you very much for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tenth Art. Make sure you don't miss any of our episodes as they come out. Subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Ubisoft.com slash The Tenth Art Podcast.